That's Acts chapter 26, verses 1 to 32. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest part of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them, even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from the people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, and they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying, both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defence, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. 
For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for those in chains. Then the king rose and the governor and, and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. About this time last year, a friend sent me a link to an online article talking about the census results that uh, less than half the English, the British population now are Christian. Uh, he's not a Christian. He was sending it to me because he was pretty pleased about this article. Saw this in the news today, he said. What do you make of it? Makes for some interesting wi- uh, reading, winky smiley face. He put a winky smiley face and he didn't write that in his message. Uh, we've got a pretty good friendship. Uh, we have some good chats about these sorts of things. Uh, and he went on to gloat about the fact that we atheists and agnostics will be the official majority within a decade. Indeed, he said, we probably already are. And to be fair, they probably already are. What are you left thinking when you hear things like that? When you see that atheism and agnosticism are on the rise, and those reporting to be Christian are falling. Of course, it's not just that we're fewer in number either. It is a growing sense that the gospel is opposed by those around us, that it is considered to be a bad thing, that it's evil, We might say that everywhere it is spoken against. What are you thinking when you step into your office or into your classroom with a widely opposed gospel in your hands? It's easy to doubt that the good news of Jesus can stand up in such a context. Can it survive? The book of Acts was written into a context where that would have been felt even more keenly. It was the age before Christendom, before the gospel had reached these shores. And even back then, we're told in Acts that Christianity was considered a sect and everywhere it was spoken against. Tonight's passage has Paul facing similar opposition and it's happening in a pretty intimidating court. Uh, We spent these last few weeks watching Paul defend himself in a series of kind of trials. And this week is the climax the Judean governor that we have, been, uh, we have met over recent weeks has been replaced by a guy called Porcius Festus, which I think is a brilliant name. Actually, I think it's a terrible name if anyone's looking for baby names. <laughs> and as well as having to give an account to Festus, Paul is confronted by someone called King Agrippa II uh, and his sister Bernice. It's a pretty impressive audience. We're told back in chapter 25, uh, verse 23, on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. And they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and with the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Can you picture having to speak in front of that kind of crowd? Can the good news of Jesus stand up in such a context? Can it survive? Well, as we watch Paul responding to that audience in this chapter, we discover that the gospel can prevail in front of such a crowd. But it's more than that we discover that the gospel standing up, prevailing in front of 
Even this kind of context is written into the eternal plan of God. This is a passage written to give us certainty. Certainty about Jesus and his gospel. Certainty that it is the fulfillment of all, that all God's people had been hoping for. And certainty that this gospel can and does stand up even in the highest court. We're going to focus in on the end of Paul's sermon, his summary in verses 22 and 23. And to help us, it's there at the top of the handouts. Let me read it out again for us. Paul says, So I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. If you get lost this evening, those are the verses to keep coming back to. And two big things for us to see this evening. Firstly, Jesus has fulfilled the long-promised hope. Jesus has fulfilled the long-promised hope. All the way through Paul's trials, he's at pains to show that he is simply teaching what all the scriptures had always promised. It's right at the beginning of his defense here. Look at verse 6. He says, now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Or verse 22 again, he says, to this day I've had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. And do you see what he's saying? I'm being put on trial, he says, for saying that Jesus has fulfilled what was promised. If you know anything about the Bible, you'll know that it is the good news of how God is saving the world. That in spite of our rebellion against him, God has provided a way for us to be brought into a right relationship with him. He sent his son to suffer and die and rise from the dead so that we might live. Indeed, so that we might enjoy the resurrection life in a new world that will be unspoilt by everything that spoils this one. And many of us will think that those ideas are ideas you find in the New Testament. But all of that is promised in the Old Testament scriptures, what Paul summarizes as Moses and the prophets. Come and ask me later, and I could show you chapter and verse for each of those ideas that I've just said. What the New Testament brings to the table is the fulfillment of those promises in Jesus. Jesus suffered and died to pay the punishment for our rebellion. And as the first to rise from the dead, Paul says, Jesus offers that resurrection life to anyone who turns to him. Paul's testimony, it's not a new religion or a corruption of the old, but the fulfillment of everything that God's people had been waiting for. It's hard nowadays to illustrate the idea of waiting for something because everything is available at the touch of a button. But there are still some occasions when we get that taste of anticipation, aren't there? Uh, Maybe it's a holiday that you're looking forward to in the next few weeks. Maybe some big life event coming next year. I met up with a couple earlier this week to talk about their wedding in just a few weeks' time. Uh, Recently, uh, for my sister-in-law's birthday, I bought her a gift voucher for a clothing shop. And while she was waiting for it to come through, it came with this promise Whether your loved one is dreaming of a whole new style or searching for the perfect addition to their favorite look, your gift will make their dreams come true. (laughs) 
I mean, I felt pretty good about that. What a great gift. Her dreams coming true. That really would be something worth waiting for, wouldn't it? But the promise the people of God were waiting for was on a whole other level. Imagine waiting for the salvation of the world, waiting all of your life. You and your parents and your grandparents and great-grandparents, dozens of generations waiting for the salvation of the world. And then salvation stepped into your village. He walked off the pages of promise and into your life. That is what happened at the coming of Jesus. That is what Paul and the apostles were announcing and which you can find in the pages of the New Testament. It's what makes the New Testament document such a great place to start if you want to find out what the Christian message is all about. If you want to get to know what Christians believe, then get a a gospel account open in front of you. You could come and uh, join us uh, week by week for small group studies to explore it more. But Paul's point here is that all of that was anticipated in the Old Testament. All of it is a fulfillment of that long-promised hope. There were loads of different promises that Jesus fulfilled, and you can find the gospel writers alluding to lots of them. But in this passage, Paul seems to give particular focus to Isaiah's promise of a servant. Isaiah 40 to 55 makes frequent mention of a servant uh, and ends up giving him quite a comprehensive job description that he would suffer, that he'd die, that he'd rise again. You get a particular job description in Isaiah 49 verse 6, which I've printed on the handouts. The Lord says, it's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This part of the servant's job description is one of Luke's favorite passages. He's quoted or alluded to it numerous times in his accounts. But you can see Paul drawing on it in our passage when he summarizes the teaching of Moses and the prophets. Look again at verse 23. That the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles, or the same word, nations. Taking light to Israel and the nations. It's Isaiah 49. This promise, all of the Old Testament hope, has been fulfilled in Jesus. And I guess for lots of us, we're thinking, yeah, Tim, we've got that. You tell us it frequently. In fact, you're probably going to spend most of Christmas telling us that. Why are you starting three weeks early? We've already had the Christmas notice. Now it seems like something that you're going to tell us again and again. Well, yes. But I wonder, do you notice the problem in what Paul said in verse 23? Look at verse 23 again. Here's what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. It's definitely the Old Testament promise. It's what what Isaiah 49 promised, a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. But, well, he didn't do that. Jesus didn't do that, did he? He suffered, he died, he rose again, yet all of that. But then he ascended into heaven without really making any mark on the nations. He didn't proclaim light to them while he was on earth. And yet Paul is able to say at the end of his speech that he has. 
because he has done it through Paul himself. Point two on the handouts. uh, Through Paul, Jesus has completed the long-promised work. And maybe you noticed, as Lou was reading, that most of this sermon is not about Jesus. It's about Paul. Between verses 8 and 22, we hear about Paul moving from opposing the name of Jesus to proclaiming his name throughout the Mediterranean. And it all hinges on his conversion in verses 13 to 18. Let me read them. Um, Actually, before we read them again, let me just remind us, this is a story that we've heard already in Acts 9. In fact, it's a story we've heard twice. We heard it in Acts 9 and we heard it again in Acts 22 as part of an earlier trial. But Paul is giving us another flashback, another account of his conversation with Jesus. And he flags something that we've not heard before. But as he does so, he says something enormous. We're going to focus in on the bit that's a bit new. Look at verse 13 with me. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen on the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul's hostility to the name of Jesus is met with the vision of the risen Lord Jesus himself. And Jesus has this wonderful line, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. A goad was a kind of pointy stick that you would use if you wanted to try and direct animals. And Jesus pictures Paul like a kind of naughty cow, kicking and screaming to try and go in its own direction. And says, Why? what are you trying to do? You're clearly not going to succeed. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. As one commentator puts it, Paul's plan to exterminate the church was doomed to fail because he was kicking against the irresistible purpose of God. I like to think it's, don't be a stupid cow. But it's that sort of thing. It's hard for you to kick against the goats. The irresistible purpose of God, you're not going to overcome. However much Paul might kick against it, Jesus has this purpose for him, to take the gospel to the nations. And while we might have missed it, Paul's commission is loaded with Old Testament imagery. Look at verse 16 with me. Uh, Rise and stand upon your feet, for I I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness. Or verse 18, he's commissioned to open their eyes so that they may turn. Which might not sound that exciting to us, but those are ideas taken from the job description of the servant figure in Isaiah we mentioned earlier. As well as being a light to the nations, the servant's job was to be a witness. It was his job to open the eyes of the blind. They're part of the servant's job description. Paul's conversion is loaded in all of this sort of language, promising the servant. But now Jesus applies them to Paul. Paul is, in some sense, the servant. Not to deny that ultimately it's Jesus who's doing it, As we've already seen, Paul finishes his speech by crediting Christ with a proclamation to the nations. But it is to say that what Jesus left unfinished when he rose into heaven, 
He has now completed through his apostles. It totally changes the way that you understand Jesus at the end of Luke's gospel when he says uh, what he said after he rose from the grave. I put it a bit lower down on the handouts. After he rose from the grave, Jesus said this, Thus is it, it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Uh, the, the scriptures promised, promised that the Christ must suffer and die and rise from the, from the dead, and they promised that the gospel needed to be proclaimed to all the nations. It's what we see in Isaiah 49, salvation needs to reach the ends of the earth. But I'd always understood that what Jesus was saying was, I've done my bit, the death and resurrection stuff, and now you guys need to do your bit. Proclaim repentance and forgiveness of sins to the ends of the earth. I've done the hard part, but marketing's not part of my job description, over to you. That's sort of how I'd seen it. But actually, marketing is part of his job description. It's there in Isaiah 49. And so Jesus has done it. He has done what the servant was commissioned to do, to proclaim light to the nations. It's just he's done it through the apostles. The risen Lord Jesus has completed from heaven what he began on earth, being the first to rise from the dead. He has proclaimed light both to Israel and to the Gentiles. That's significant because it means that God's plan has been fulfilled. The promises, as we've been seeing all evening, have found their yes and amen in Jesus. All of them. I take it when we say it is finished, we'll sing it is finished, and we'll all be focused on the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's true, and it's brilliant, and it's a great thing to sing about. But it's also true that the promise that the gospel would go to the ends of the nation has been, at the ends of the earth, has been fulfilled. It was written into God's plans. Postage and packaging were included, if you like. Marketing was part of the servant's job. And then when salvation stepped off the pages of promise and onto the pages of history, he accomplished salvation and he took it to the ends of the earth. He proclaimed light to the nations. It's significant because God's plan is fulfilled. And it's significant because he completed it, which is to say that it worked. The gospel made it to the ends of the earth. At the beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus says that the gospel will go to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. You had these categories and we've seen that work. It's reached the final category. And there is no hurdle along that route where the gospel fell. No audience before whom the gospel could not stand. It went to the highest courts, to the lecture halls of Ephesus, to the debating arenas of Athens. And in any and every context, it prevailed mightily. Not that everyone became a believer, but everywhere there were those who believed. And the gospel continued its journey to the end. It's what we've been seeing all the way through this book. This book of the acts of the risen Lord Jesus through his apostles. In fact, it's what's going on in our passage as Paul is speaking. There in front of this king, in front of all of the pomp and majesty of Porcius Festus and King Agrippa and Bernice, Jesus, through Paul, is proclaiming light to the nations, to the ends of the earth. And the gospel doesn't fall here either. Even though everywhere this sect is spoken against, 
this highest court of the land has to acknowledge there's nothing wrong with it. Even there, the gospel stands up. Jesus didn't wash his hands of the marketing. He proclaimed salvation to the ends of the earth. And as he did so, it prevailed. Which means that when I worry whether the gospel can stand up, whether it can survive when everywhere it's spoken against, I know the answer is yes. Jesus has proven it. He's done it. He's taken the gospel to the end of the earth and it prevailed. My flatmate is massively into climbing and it's got me a little bit interested. And so I have recently started not climbing, but listening to an audiobook about <laughs> an audiobook called Everest 1953. It's an account of how the highest mountain on earth was finally conquered. 33 year old beekeeper turned mountain climber Edmund Hillary and the Sherpa Tenzing Norgay. They made it to the top of Mount Everest and were the first to do so. It's a fascinating audiobook. It talks about all the different teams that had tried for years to ascend the mountain. Uh, the political challenges of getting approval for an expedition from the different governments um, that had a stake in Mount Everest. The lives that were lost in various attempts. For so long, many thought that it was impossible. But finally, on the 29th of May, 1953, those two reached the summit, the highest that anyone had ever stood on planet Earth. And from there on in, we knew it was possible. When it comes to the proclamation of the gospel, Jesus has stood on that highest point. When he calls his disciples to proclaim repentance for forgiveness of sins to all nations, he's not asking us to scale an unscalable mountain. He has done it himself, proclaimed the gospel in the highest court through his apostles, through Paul, the gospel to the end of the earth. And it prevailed. Of course it did. When you think about what he's got to share. Sometimes we talk about repentance for the forgiveness of sins as though it's no more interesting than the takeaway menu. But look how Jesus describes it in verse 18. Not just repentance for forgiveness of sins. Uh, Paul is sent to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. That they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Do you see what he's offering? To have eyes opened, urging people to turn from darkness to light, to come out of blindness and the darkness of evil and rebellion against God and to step instead into his light, into the freedom and life that God offers. It's what we've been seeing all the way through this book of Acts. I think of that slave girl back in Acts 16 who was liberated from the spirit who possessed her. Or Acts 19, when vast crowds who'd been committed to the occult renounced their former ways in order to serve the living God. Countless men and women, enslaved to their godlessness and rebellion, turning to find liberty in the Lord Jesus. And it means, verse 18 again, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. For every person who puts their trust in Jesus, they're offered full and free forgiveness, washed clean of every sin, their penalty paid in full by Jesus' death on their behalf, set apart to belong to him and promised a resurrection life. Repentance for forgiveness of sins. It's a hugely rich message. 
And let me say, if that is not something that you have done, if you've not turned to Jesus from darkness to light, would you heed his call? Uh, Jesus has suffered and being the first to rise from the dead proclaims light to you. Will you step into it? But the point of this sermon in the book of Acts is to say that this gospel, this rich, exciting gospel, has prevailed on the highest stage. Everywhere it is spoken against, but it's stood up in the highest court. God's promise that a servant would suffer and die and rise and proclaim has been fulfilled in Jesus. And as he took the gospel to the ends of the earth through his apostles, it prevailed. It means, in a sense, that there's no such thing as pioneering ministry. You heard of pioneering ministry before? Uh, Jesus has stood on Mount Everest, so to speak, the Mount Everest of gospel proclamation, presented the gospel in the highest court. He's already pioneered the gospel to the end of the earth. So everything we do is, well, it's on ground that he's already covered. I'm not doing down any of the brilliant work that pioneer missionaries do when the gospel is taken to unreached people groups. It's a brilliant work. It is a commendable work. But it's, it's just it's not pioneering in the sense that Jesus has already covered that ground when he took the gospel to the end of the earth. Everything we do falls within the borders of what he has already covered And I take it that is a great comfort when we consider the grounds that we will walk this week. As you step onto a university campus filled with some of the brightest minds that London has to offer, or you step into your studio or your practice room or your classroom or your ward or the boardroom, your office, step into the office of your CEO, step into the palace, step into whatever you think the highest court might be. Can the gospel prevail there? Well, God wrote into his eternal plans that salvation would reach the end of the earth. And he didn't just promise it. He fulfilled it. Through his apostles, Jesus has completed that long promised work. And the gospel prevailed. It's a well-timed thing for me to hear. Tomorrow evening, I'm going to be meeting up with a group of friends who aren't Christians and part of a book group, and I'll have in my pockets, yeah, I've got them ready, a load of carol service flyers. Did we all notice that Paul here, this Paul, was dressed accordingly? <laughs> yeah, very good. I won't be, but I will have them in my pockets. And granted, it's the easiest of invites. It really is easy to invite people to a carol service, but there are people in my book group who are really hostile to the gospel, even to the idea of me handing a flyer. I've got some pretty bad responses you can ask me about later. With that particular group, I can find it hard to believe that the gospel might stand up. I speak of Jesus, of my hope, with a sort of quivering, apologetic voice. And then I come to these verses to the gospel on trial in the highest court, and it prevails in front of kings, just as God promised that it would do. Doesn't that give you certainty? Doesn't it give you boldness? Why don't I pray that it would do that for us? Our Father, we praise you for giving 
us this wonderful message that not only have you offered us salvation in the Lord Jesus, but you have made sure you have seen it proclaimed to the ends of the earth. Thank you that the ground we walk is ground Christ has already covered. And so we pray uh, this week, in the weeks to come, particularly in this Christmas season, you might give us confidence in this precious good news and boldness to proclaim it. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.